Have you ever walked through a forest, wondering how it got there? Did it just happen one day? Did people make forests? Or did the plants themselves have a say? Welcome to Uncharted Geography, where we map the world one conversation at a time. Today, we have Meg Seely joining us all the way from the Pacific. Meg's passion for nature has taken her through a variety of experiences and places. In this conversation, we touch on why forestry matters and how humans can play an important and evolving role in conserving our natural environment. Megs, thanks for joining me. It's great to see you. It's great to see you as well. Well, I like to start off the podcast by just asking each participant what one of the most special places in the world to you is. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a hard question for me um, since I've had the opportunity to fall in love with a lot of different places. Um, but I think, honestly, the place that feels the most special to me um, is not necessarily any one place, but um, more of, I guess, a, a moment and a feeling. It's when, um, so I'm a, a really big rock climber. And mm. uh, when you climb, sometimes you have the opportunity to climb very, very tall faces. And when you do, you have to, uh, one person will climb up and then the other person will follow you and you keep repeating that pattern. But, uh, when you're at the top of what we call pitch and your second person is following you, you're sitting or hanging off the edge of a cliff or sitting on a ledge, like open air below you, a rock to your face, to your backside. And then just like a beautiful landscape in front of you. And like, there's nobody else there. There's just your follower who's coming up like way far below you half the time you can't even communicate um and so it's just kind of like you on a middle of a rock face and it's probably for me um one of the most special places and the most special feelings uh in the world wow i love that i like a lot that you chose a place that's actually many places but still a place right it's a <laughs> it's a common experience that also has diversity and you could be many places in the world having that experience. That's kind of cool. Well, so I'm curious about, I know you studied forestry and, in undergrad, and uh, since then you've, you've worked your way in, into different places. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your journey with studying forests or plants and what the questions or interests that led you to that work? Yeah, so... Um... I was kind of always one of those kids that loved to run around in the woods um, and get dirty and collect bugs. Um, but the thing that really drew me to forestry was when I was uh, in high school, I did a semester school called, it's called Conserve School. Um, and it was, I kind of call it a, a little bit of a hippie school because instead of sitting in a classroom, we would read passages of John Muir while sitting in a tree. Um, and we learned about Lewis and Clark by going out and portaging across lakes in a wilderness area. Um, but uh, and one you of did the this for high school. Yeah, this was in high school. <laughs> wow, amazing. Yeah, it was it was a phenomenal experience. Um, and uh, yeah, so one of the, the the moments I think that struck me the most is in our environmental science class. Uh, we were given saws and told to go out and cut trees down basically <laughs> and so you know uh for me that was kind of the moment where 
like it was a little bit odd because you don't think about conservation as going out and cutting trees. You think of it as, you know, training yourself to a tree to stop people from cutting them down. Um, and that was a moment where it clicked to me, uh, for me, what management and conservation actually is and how much it's um, an interaction between uh, people and their environment and that you have to um, do, you sometimes have to cut down a tree in order to pr protect and preserve the forest. Um, and I really liked that aspect of it, the fact that um, it, conservation is very nuanced and it's not just like this black and white, you have to rope something off and protect it. You actually have to go in and do active management and understand the dynamics of a landscape. So I kind of fell in love with, with that idea. And so pursued forestry. Um, and then afterwards, I, uh, well, actually, while I was an undergraduate doing forestry, I ended up working in a couple of different geography labs. And so ended up falling in love with the idea of space, you know, being able to explain why things are where they are based on understanding concepts of space and actually ended up doing my senior thesis on that, trying to explain why beech trees exist in certain areas in Wisconsin. <laughs> and so that led me down the path of geography and I've kind of continued down that path now uh, into my PhD. But before uh, I ended up going to my PhD, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something with conservation, management, probably some sort of spatial data included. And that was kind of where I was at. Um, and then I worked for a program with NASA called uh, Develop. And basically the purpose of the program is to work with decision makers and bring them data from, from NASA satellites, remote sensing data. Um, so we got to work on like a wide breadth of projects. I got to work with uh, city officials, uh, national, or national, national park people, uh, all sorts of different land managers and just bring them the data that they need and the insights that they need in order to make the decisions. And from there, that's kind of what hooked me on remote sensing because all of a sudden, like I had this data set that was unique and continuous and it was also spatially continuous as opposed to having like discrete points across the landscape, uh, which is what I had been working with you know, going into the field and taking measurements and then coming back and put, putting them into GIS. Sure. And then all of a sudden you have all of this data. And like, I love, <laughs> I love the data. <laughs> I love the fact that you, you're just inundated with it. Um, and you can tell a story using pictures that you take from space essentially. So that's um, led me towards in incorporating remote sensing and focusing on remote sensing for my PhD. So I really like that concept about spaces and places are constructed and interacted with. They're not just, like you said, roped off and leave it alone and then go into it and escape into the wilderness in that way, um, perhaps. But there's there's more to the story there. And also conservation. I'm curious. I feel like a lot of people don't grow up with the mentality of conservation. Don't grow up reading John Muir, maybe. Do you feel like your upbringing was part of what led you to these things? I think that there's definitely a lot with how I grew up and they helped me fall in love with being outside. Like every weekend we would uh, go out camping. We would, my dad was a big hunter. So especially in the fall, we would always, we would always go out 
to uh my parents own some land in Wisconsin and so we were out there and I would be running around in the forest and I would be playing in the stream and since most of the time it was you know just my family out there a lot I spent a lot of time by myself running around in the woods um and I think that kind of sparked a lot of uh curiosity towards nature and a lot of kind of that that sense of wonder that you get with with science and actually um the my first kind of science experiment that I did was had to do with monarch butterflies even before that I like was collecting monarchs from <laughs> from all the milkweed and I was raising them and I just like had a, a whole bunch of monarch caterpillars in my room which of course smelled terrible <laughs> Um, but that's what I did every summer. And then that also kind of was my avenue towards science because I started doing like research experiments with the monarchs that I was already raising. So, And it sounds like that interest in protecting that awe and love and interaction with nature is also kind of part of what you're doing now, right? With Ohialehua, I think is yep. the full name. Uh, right? Yeah, that's the common name. I think that there's a lot of different things that I could have chosen to do with my time and dedication and um, intelligence. But there's a lot of things that I could have done uh, with my time. And for me, being able to, in a lot of ways, give back to the places that I've loved, the places that I've been able to explore and like go out and hike or climb or just kind of hang out in has been really, really important for me um, and really kind of what drives me through the the <laughs> the kind of the slums of being a PhD, right? The those years where you just kind of have to push through and know that you'll get to that point. But For it's like sure. kind of going back to that, like this is something that I do love and I really care about and I think is very important for me to spend my time doing. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you are researching and what what is going on with Ohia? How do you use data in order to try and uh, connect that with your love of nature and doing something important? What are, what are your projects look yeah, like? So uh, Okia is a fascinating, fascinating tree. Um, and it's been used as a model, uh, a model system to study uh, evolution and ecology. And that's because, uh, so Okia's scientific name is Metrosideros polymorpha. And polymorpha means many forms. And that, and um, since you've been to Hawaii, you've seen all the different forms of ohia. It can grow at high elevation and low elevation. It, the leaves look completely different. You can have trees that are 30 meters tall and trees that are five meters tall. My picture in my head is from, so on Oahu, there's the mm -hmm. Ko'olau range or Ko'olalo and uh, the ohia up there, I just, I, when I think of Ohia, I think of trekking through clouds on the Hawaiian mountains and it's kind of rainy and cold and windy and these twisted knobby trees that have a bunch of moss growing on them. Yep. They almost look like they're about to fall off uh, in the ground sometimes. And then they have these beautiful flowers. Like I didn't realize though that they also grow things. Yeah, uh, and really so cool. because you were at high, you, at high elevation, um, trees in general tend to have a shorter stature, but also, so Ohia, um, Ohia dispersed to Hawaii from most likely, I think New Zealand is the current thought. 
And then from there, it kind of hopped across all the other islands. And so Hawaii is a very unique place in that it's set, it's the most remote island chain. And so you don't have as many dispersal events of species to Hawaii, at least pre-human contact, you didn't have a lot of <laughs> introductions. And so right. when um, Metrosideros came to Hawaii, it was kind of like a wide open field and there were a lot of space for it to uh, fill. And so nature abhors the vacuum. And so Ohia ended up filling that vacuum and adapting to all of these different environments on each island, uh, within an island and then across all the different islands. Um, because as uh, we were talking about earlier, Kauai is, the old island is so different than Hawaii Island, uh, the young island in so many different ways, uh, the elevation and the soil. And then even within one island, you have, you know, a desert on Hawaii Island, you have a desert on one side and like the rainiest city in, in the U.S. on the other, right? So Ohia has dispersed into all these different, these different ecological niches and has adapted into them. And so it's fascinating to study from an evolutionary standpoint because you have different areas like the Amazon, for example, where um, you have a lot of different niches in the Amazon, but you also have so many different species and you have a different species to fill each one. Whereas in Hawaii, it's just, uh, some cases, just one species. And so on Hawaii Island, which is where I primarily, prim primarily work, it's also known as the Big Island. You have uh, mm -hmm. one species, so you only have Metrocities polymorphon. There's been a few other species on some other some of the other islands that have um, evolved, but here we have just one species. But there are a lot of different uh, varieties of that one species, and it's interesting because they exist along an elevation gradient. So you have like one that's kind of like what you're talking about, like you have your high elevation gradient or high elevation uh, variety. Um, and then as you go uh, Makai uh, towards the ocean, you have your different, you, uh, you have another variety um, that tends to only occur on early, um, on uh, early successional, successional sites or so it, it's an early successional species. So it's evolved or so it's growing on areas that have had recent lava flows because Hawaii Island is still has, has an active volcano. And so then you have another, another variety that is kind of at the same elevation, but is a late successional species. So it's kind of replaces uh, the other one. And then you have one variety that exists only along rivers. And it has like this, yeah, it's like this crazy, like small ecological niche that's just in rivers. And apparently like, they not only grow along rivers, but when there's floods and whatnot, it can just withstand all of the water coming through and it will just be literally in the water <laughs> and growing. But then you also have some wow. that are, you know, on mountaintops, right? And it's all the same species. So not only at, did Okia have the opportunity to kind of be in the right place at the right time, partially because its seeds are so small, Ohia has the ability to colonize early lava flows so like you can walk around and see Ohia popping like pretty much straight out of lava rock which is crazy there's like no soil and all of a sudden you have like Ohia trees right and so that definitely wow. helped aid Ohia in colonizing the Hawaiian Islands. 
tell me a little bit more about how that works, how that fits into what you're up to. I guess I'll explain um, the issue first. So there is a disease that is new to science. Okay. Um, it was it was first uh, documented in 2010, um, and it's called rapid ohia death, or ROD for short. It's caused by two fungi, uh, and they're just absolutely destroying the uh, ohia forest here. And that's very significant because um, ohia is the dominant the dominant tree in all the forest here, like on Hawaii Island, about 80% of the forest canopy is ohia. And so not only is it extraordinarily important for ecological functions, habitat for native birds, um, and also very culturally important to native Hawaiians, but um, once there is this disturbance, then you have the opportunity for invasive species to come in. And because Hawaii is an island. Islands are often uh, have have issues with invasive species. So when something is introduced, it's very difficult to remove it. It's also very uh, conducive for a lot of plants to grow. So a lot of things become invasive when they're introduced to Hawaii. Uh, so yeah, so once you have stands that have high mortality as a result of rod, they have this opportunity for invasive species to come in. And then you have this regime shift from your native uh, Metrocytorius forests to something else. And so what I am doing in particular is I am trying to look at resistance in Ohia to rapid Ohia death. So, right, you have within a host population, you have different levels of susceptibility and resistance, right? Like, with COVID, some people will get COVID and some people won't. Some people will get COVID and, you know, become extremely sick and some people will get COVID and not show any symptoms, right? The same is true for tree species. And so the idea is that we try to identify what's, identify the trees that are more resistant than others and use those to reforest that have been affected by rods so that we have uh, here regenerating instead of these invasive species. Um, and I'm approaching it from a angle of remote sensing. So currently there's a, a program that's run by the U.S. Forest Service and in collaboration with the University of Hilo, or of Hawaii Hilo. Um, and they're trying to identify resistance by just like kind of a shotgun approach, like inoculating trees that they found in the field that they think will be resistant based on uh, whether based on, you know, whether or not this stand has gotten rod or if it's a lone survivor of in a stand that had rod and they're taking them, growing them, waiting till they're about two or three years old and then inoculating them and then trying to see if they survive or not. Wait, so you can give, you can give vaccines to trees. Is that right? <laughs> well, this, I, in this case, it's more of giving them the disease to see if they die. <laughs> This is why I like ecology. There's a lot, uh, a lot fewer ethical issues <laughs> involved. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this whole process takes a long time. You have to like go out and collect the seeds. Then you have to grow them till they're two or three years old. And then you have like a lengthy, you know, six to eight month process of the inoculation period. Um, and then, you know, by then like three years have passed and then you have to 
grow more of them in order to plant, right? So then another few years. My piece in this is I'm trying to, one, uh, see if in that experiment that I just talked about, see if there is some sort of signature in the reflectance spectra, and I'll talk about that in a minute, of whether of resistant versus not resistant. Um, and that's part of what I'm working on. But remote sensing is basically anything that you don't measure directly. And so common uh, one common way of doing it is uh, you kind of passively collect information about, in, in some ways, just color, right? So like, if you take a photograph of something, you get information about the red, green, and blue values of, of whatever you're looking at. And that's divided into these little squares that we call pixels, and each one has a value for red, green, and blue. And that's remote sensing data in a nutshell. We're just looking down at something. Um, and we have very specific wavelengths that we're looking at to get those red, green, blue values. The data that I use is um, right now is called imaging spectroscopy or hyperspectral data. So instead of just having red, green, blue, and sometimes you get infrared, I have data that goes from the visible, so everything that we can see with our eye, all the way through the infrared into the shortwave infrared. For me, that means that I can look at the top of a tree or a tree canopy, and I can tell, and using um, conversions, we can estimate how much nitrogen is in that canopy or chlorophyll or lignin, like all of these very important uh, leaf traits for understanding ecology. But also it's important for, to also we're looking at the phenotypes or the expressions of uh, different genes. Um, and that is all captured within this reflection spectra. So there's been a couple other studies that have uh, been able to uh, look at genetics and be able to either map out different tree um, varieties, or some people look at different like specific alleles, and they're able to use imaging spectroscopy data to quantify that in the landscape. So I'm going to do that for Ohia. Um, and I want to not only look at Ohia across the landscape um, and kind of where they are to help us understand the evolution oncology side, but also if we compare this spatial genetic data with uh, occurrences of rapid ohia death and the spread of rod, then we can start to understand this genetic component and we can start to understand patterns of resistance um, across the landscape and fill in that story. The first step for me is making a map of where ohia are. So kind of doing species classification because that doesn't exist for Hawaii islands, a map of just where they are. And so because we don't have that map, there's, we also don't have really good, accurate data on the spread of rapid ohia death across the island. So we have helicopter surveys that are done, but it's like people in a helicopter like circling areas on a map, which is not super precise. If we don't have the information of very precise information of where it's all, where rapid ohia death is spreading, then how do we really under, understand what's going on with this disease um, and understand its spread in order to stop it? So I kind of want to create that both for the understanding and also as like a monitoring system, because there are ways that, you know, if we can detect an instance of rod, people can go into the field, they would cut down the tree and they would tarp it so that spores can't get out. 
So to take a step back to forestry for a minute, because I know you've not just studied this with Ohia, but like you said, uh, beech trees in Wisconsin, I think. And how do you see forestry as this um, as this practice? I, I think a lot of people maybe don't really know how where forests come from, how they're managed. And you you already mentioned that, you know, they don't just show up like there's interaction between humans and forests and what we often call wilderness. The conservation in forest management at its core depends on what your goals are. Like what, what, what do you want the outcome to be, right? So like, are you trying to prevent forest fires or are you trying to increase biodiversity or maybe you're trying to conserve one very specific species? The process to get there definitely depends on the end goal and the end goal is different based on who you're asking and who's interested, <laughs> um, which makes conservation very, very difficult because uh, you have all these different stakeholders who have all these different interests. And so for me, I think that the, the purpose of forestry is an understanding what's going on in forests, understanding principles of ecology is so that we can understand not only the end goal itself, but how to get there. If we understand forest fire dynamics and we understand you know the idea of overcrowding and how when trees are grown too close together especially like uh, coniferous trees in the west and their branches start to touch then their their branches will will just let them go the trees will let them die and then you get this uh, what we call ladder fuel so you get a bunch of dead branches that lead up to the canopy and then all of a sudden, when you have what could have been a very small fire go through, it starts to ignite this ladder fields and you get a big canopy fire versus if you had thin that forest beforehand, um, you have a less dense forest, then you don't, you can have low severity fire and you don't get these big raging out of control forest fires. So would you say that in a way? I mean, you're, you're drawing all these connections to, you know, different stakeholders, different interests that people have. Some people just don't want to fire near their house. Other people really care about nature and want to preserve it. Other people, um, you know, maybe just want parks or, you know, there's all these different ways that we envision nature. Would you say that forests in large part are, are shaped by humans? Like, where do forests come from in that sense? Uh, obviously, species find their own way, but human decisions have really shaped the landscape too. Um, I'm curious how many forests, you know, that the average American, for example, might walk through, how many of those forests have been like very significantly shaped by the decisions people have made? I think that forests as a concept in themselves haven't necessarily been shaped by humans. But the presence of different communities of species on the landscape have been. So like if we look at Yosemite Valley, right? Like right now, it's just kind of covered in pine trees, um, ponderosa pines, um, a few other coniferous species. And then every once in a while, you'll see like some oaks. Um, and the reason why you see oaks is because um, the Awanichi people who lived in the valley um, prior to the Spaniards coming in, <laughs> um, pre-European pre settlement and colonialism, uh, lived in the valley and they burned the valley every year. And as a result of their burning, they 
they excluded the the pine trees in preference for the oaks. And the reason why they did that is because they would use acorns as a food source. And so I think more and more as we dig into the history of landscapes and acknowledge the fact that people have been shaping landscapes, we start to understand these different legacy effects and the fact that what is we consider this pristine landscape isn't apart from nature. Um, so when we stopped burning in the valley, which was in a way a choice, a management decision, I would argue, you all of a sudden get this regime shift um, from oaks to now you have a lot of ponderosa pine, you have a lot of fire risk. <laughs> that's, a, that's similar across all of California, that kind of story. But like going back to Wisconsin, um, historically there was a lot of prairie. And the reason why was because again, it was burned. And then there is uh, grazing, which kept the trees down. And then now uh, there's kind of this emergence of forest growing. And so a lot of people, especially in Southern Wisconsin, see these forests and think that, you know, the forest has always been there, but it hasn't. They're actually like a relatively new to the landscape because it's been so intensively managed. And then that lack of management has led to forests being developed. You also see it in a lot of tropical places where people look at the Amazon, for example, and they're like, oh, it's pristine. There are places that are like never touched by people. And then you look a little bit closer and you're like, huh, there's a lot of fruit trees growing right there. <laughs> like, I wonder why. Well, it's because people cultivated these fruit trees to eat them, right? Um, or like the soil is extremely rich and it's like, oh yeah, that's where like people had their compost there basically. Yeah, so I, I would say that um, there is a lot of myth in how we think about forests being completely separate from people and us not being necessarily a part of the environment or like this pristine untouched condition that we kind of fetishize that doesn't exist in a lot of ways. And a lot of people argue that it doesn't exist. It's interesting living in Seoul, there's forests all over the mountains here. It's beautiful. It's, a, it's actually a very big part, I think, of people's everyday life is going through these parks with forests. Um, but during the Korean War, and during Japanese colonization, a lot of these forests were just decimated and chopped down and Korea looked very uh, desolate in many, many places. And so sometimes I'm walking through the forest and I have to remember, oh yeah, there was this huge campaign to plant trees in I think the 1960s maybe in order to regrow these forests. And now everybody living currently is benefiting from that decision. I want to tack back for a second to um, to invasive species. In many ways, I, I think if we're not connected to the land, we don't see the significance of, you know, these changing environments. And if one species range is really growing fast and it kicks out another species, like how do you feel invasive species kind of play a role in people's lives in general? Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. So uh, there's, have you heard of the concept of novel ecosystems? No, I don't think so. So um, a novel ecosystem, and I'm not going to try to give you an exact definition because I will butcher it, sure. but from uh, kind of my understanding of a novel ecosystem, it's a kind of a new assemblage of species and conditions that are a consequence of human activities. 
it tends to be more and like you can say that technically every like as you were talking earlier like then everything's kind of a novel ecosystem if you just include all human activities but i think uh more conventionally it's thought of as tends to be more recent human activities post-colonialism often although you could argue that hawaii uh after the polynesians came um they brought a lot of what we call canoe plants a lot of like fruit trees and edible plants like coconut and breadfruit right yeah and, and, um, and uh, they created a novel ecosystem in hawaii and uh and now we consider you know canoe plants and native trees and we lump them as like the good species and everything else is bad species <laughs> yeah so there's this concept of novel ecosystems and the, the question is are novel ecosystems inherently bad are these new species assemblages inherently something that we shouldn't want and that we should try to get rid of. We should try to go back to some undetermined date and make the forest look exactly like that. And so, you know, when you have, for example, cheatgrass across California, that's causing giant wildfires, like maybe then, yeah, that's a bad, that's not a novel ecosystem that has an outcome <laughs> that we don't want. <laughs> but if it's a novel ecosystem where a species is re being replaced by another that has a similar function, is it necessarily something that we should put our time and effort into? In conservation, I tend to think of conservation as just like a giant triage, like, right? There's very limited time and money and people power to do things. And so the question sometimes is, is more of like, well, do we have the, the time and money to get rid of all these invasives? Because if we spend a lot of effort on that, we might not be able to work on rot or, you know, some other issue, right? And with invasive species, it's extraordinarily different, difficult to eradicate all of them. It's very, very rarely done. Um, and I can't even think of a case in the top of my head where it has been successfully accomplished. Um, yeah, it's a question of, you know, what what is going on in Hawaii? Um, the invasive species tend to be more lowland. What's interesting is kind of going back to the remote sensing side is that there's a very different functional um, or a lot of the invasive species have it, um, different functional traits than the native systems. A lot of them tend to be nitrogen fixers. And so uh, you can use this the imaging spectroscopy data and you can very easily map out invasive species versus native species because their function is so different really yeah it's kind of it's very interesting but yeah then the question is like is it is it causing harm and then how do we define harm and how do we how do we address it right like if we're going to entirely replace ohia and all of a sudden the native bird species populations are going to collapse like that's something that's worth investing your time into it's a very difficult question um and one that is very much debated currently in scientific literature so does it also go the other way, for example, with endangered species of plants? Is that a priority? I mean, I'm assuming it's a priority for some conservation, but like you said, there's there's limited time and effort. And But it sounds like also when a species is endangered, like if that goes extinct, it, it's not the only thing that's suffering. The rest of the ecosystem feels the effects of a, a species going out particularly, or maybe it depends more on the species. Definitely depends on the species. Um, so there are some species called keystone species. And so Ohia is a keystone species where its role in the ecosystem is much larger than 
its abundance. There's also an idea of functional redundancy within an ecosystem. And so Hawaii is unique in that there's like one tree that dominates pretty much all the islands. But like, for example, in the Amazon or like a lot of other places that have more species, there's multiple different species that can play the same role. So like you get rid of one and then you have other species that can fill that role. The problem is then how many can you take out and all of a sudden you don't have enough, right? And so we don't ever want to get to that point. And the other problem with species extinction is that once it's extinct, it's gone. It's, you can't go back, right? And so um, that's that's one of the issues with exp species extinctions is that it's so irreversible <laughs> that we um, we don't really want to want to uh, have that outcome happen. Uh, it still blows my mind that you can use remote sensing. You can use these wavelengths of color and and other wavelengths on the electromagnetic spectrum to identify invasive species, identify where ohia is, and potentially even which ohia are sick. It sounds like. Oh, that's um, that has been done. That's for sure happened. Um, so when you think about your interest, your I don't know dreams or the things that you want to continue doing where do you see this path taking you i feel like a, a lot of scientists the goal is to do something that has broader meaning and so right we study this model system of hawaii so that we can better understand other systems and apply our techniques or technologies to other systems and so for me i'm hoping to contribute to this very small but growing body of literature of understanding genetic diversity, species diversity, and even um, uh, uh, disease ecology at the landscape scale and be able to then say, okay, well, we can do this in Hawaii. Why can't we do this in other places? Why can't we look at like sudden oak death? Um, why can't we look at Dutch elm disease or like many other diseases that are affecting trees worldwide? So I can I see how it could be applicable to other areas, especially since soon uh, we'll have uh, spectrometers in imaging spectrometers in space, and that opens up a lot of possibilities because all of a sudden this data set is about to be out in the world and available to anybody to use it. At this point, I mean, there's been a lot of work trying to refine the different applications of these data, and I think that there's still a lot more to go. And all of a sudden, like looking at like, oh yeah, I might be doing a postdoc with uh, the satellite data, but like, are we ready for that? Like, <laughs> do we know enough to be able to like use those data effectively? Um, that's kind of a big question mark, but. Do you find that as you continue this work that those moments maybe of awe or that passion within you to just be in the environment as, as a person, is that still something that you're able to experience? Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, I don't, right now I'm not doing a whole lot of field work. So I am mostly computer bound. Sometimes I go to the greenhouse or the lab <laughs> every once in a while, but I mean, I get a lot of my time outside climbing and ever since I moved to Hawaii surfing and I get that experience of being just like, for me, just being outside in a beautiful place and being able to like here being able to like sit by the side of a cliff and have a waterfall right next to me and like climb there is really really amazing and awesome um and it makes me 
really love and appreciate Hawaii as a place um, and like surfing too. I mean, obviously surfing is a big thing to do in Hawaii, uh, but like being out there on the waves and like being in the ocean, it gave me a much uh, greater appreciation for, for, for me, like growing up in the Midwest, I've always had lakes, but like never an ocean. Right. And so it gave me a greater appreciation of the ocean itself and being able to like feel it underneath me and trying to like read it and understand it. And then eventually every once in a while can hop up on the board and actually ride <laughs> yeah. a little bit less often than the, the sitting out there. And for me, uh, a lot of it comes from being able to go and play outside. I mean, I still get those moments of like, wow, that's really cool. Like I get to learn something and like get really excited about the kind of the curiosity side, but like actually engaging with, um, the world around me and not just my computer screen has been more of um, my my playtime adventures. Is there anything else you wish people knew about forestry or plants or geography or conservation or any of the other topics we've talked about? Well, I have been planning on uh, talking more about that kind of human nature dichotomy. Um, yeah. I think that... Uh, that's a, an important thing to consider and especially important thing uh, to consider when we're going out and experiencing these places like under and like experiencing uh, the sublime or like the romanticism of nature and being outside. And it's awesome and amazing. I think that's a powerful experience to be able to uh, encourage people to care and understand the landscape, but it also, I think a lot of a lot of people have a little bit of an attitude and I definitely am this way too where it's you know nature is better than human made things um it's better to spend my weekends outside than just like hanging out in my house or in a garden somewhere or a park somewhere and that has often been an issue with with how we interact with the nature and environment and shapes kind of a lot of the things that we have been talking about, about like what's important and how we interact with nature. And who's to say that preserving one species or, you know, conserving Yosemite Valley is any more important than, you know, making sure that air is breathable in, you know, West Oakland, <laughs> right? Who's to say that um, this sublime view that people do you get a lot of value from is any better than the places that we live? And I think it's important to remember that the environment is, is everything that's around us. It's the gardens and the farms and the cities and all these other places. And we need to be conscious of that when we think about conservation. And it's not just conserving the outside, these other, the place that we have to go to, it's conserving the places where we live. That is our show for today. Thank you, Meg, so much for joining us and sharing from your own wisdom and experiences. Stay tuned, folks. We've got a lot of special shows in the works that I think you are going to love. Until then. Uncharted Geography is an educational resource designed to help our global community learn about the world and its activities. It is hosted, recorded, mixed, and produced by John McHugh.